Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Welcome, everyone, to History, Politics, and Beer. My name is Matt Shockey. we got another exciting podcast for you. Uh, we are sitting down here in the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And across from me, as always, is Jeff Hudson. And Jeff, it seems that we are bypassing the beer today. And I see a familiar bottle across the table from me. What am I looking at? You're just looking at Kahlua, which was, uh, you know, like Kahlua, it's, it's okay, but I stopped at the state store and I wanted Tia Maria, which is a Jamaican coffee. It had been a really great. We're talking about marijuana today. Jamaica would have been a great connection yeah, there. Yeah, Kahlua is made in Mexico, though. Close, Mexico is yeah. going to come up. But uh, I think a lot of people know how this taste in White Russians and other cocktails. So White Russian, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. The White Russian. Yeah, I, yeah all right. And, 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 you know, a lot of people put Kahlua in their coffee yeah. the same way with Tia Maria. So we're just having Kahlua. Uh, I like it. Yes, it's, it's, it's kind of sweet. I just had dinner. It is. It's it is a sweet. But it's not something you're going to drink a lot of. It's a little kind of a desserty flavor to it. Right. It's either going to be in a cocktail. Yeah. Or you're going to have it for dessert, and and you don't drink a whole lot of it. No, I, I yeah. I, I it, what what would this pair well with food wise? If you were eating something, you were sitting down to eat something. What would you want to have? Well, along have with this? To me, it have to be some like a pie. Would yeah, you? that's what I was thinking. Like, like an apple pie. Oh, a little apple pie. A little, a little a la mode. Warm apple pie and Kahlua. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I can do that. That's the Thanksgiving's coming up. Yeah, and you can even you know put that in your coffee with 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 your warm apple pie. I could do that. Okay. All right. So here we go. This, I like to uh, shout out to James Reinhard. Uh, he's a listener and he gave us, he emailed us and had a request for a podcast. And if you would have a request for a podcast that you would like us to do, uh, you can always contact us at history, politics, and beer at Gmail. Um, I use social media, not as much as I should, but certainly you can tweet us or you can hit us on Facebook, but probably the best way to contact us is through email. Again, history, politics, and beer at Gmail. And James wanted uh, us to do a podcast on marijuana and the legalization of marijuana. And I will tell you that, uh, Jeff, doing this research, I've probably honestly done more research on this than I think almost any other podcast we've done. There's just so much information out there uh, and trying to find good information that isn't like pro pot or anti pot was not difficult, but you had to be careful. You have to read through everything. You have to read through everything. And I think that I've come up with a solid group of facts here uh, that I think is are pretty objective uh, that really isn't slanted one way or the other. And this history, before we even talk about legalization, we really have to talk about the history of marijuana. Right. Right, we do. And we to, way before it even comes to the United States. Right, the whole way. And I want to start off before we even get into that. Um, I want to actually start at the end. What is your opinion right now on legalization in the United States? And I don't, I'm not asking for a full breakdown, but are you pro-legalization or anti or think it's the prohibition is good? Well, yeah, and there's there's a couple things. I think the fed, there's still a federal prohibition. Yes, there is. We're going to talk about yep. of, and that we'll talk about. And I'm against that. I think this should have been uh, uh, regulated at the state level as it has been. 
uh, over the years, uh, although there's also been federal regulation. And what I'm in favor of is something that I should have, I think should have been done all along. And that is actually not legalization or criminalization. Uh, I think they should have decriminalized it, that, that, that it should have, ne- it should have always been okay for you to grow pot in your own backyard for your personal use. I really, you know, I don't think it's any worse than alcohol or other drugs that this society accepts. It's probably uh, and in terms of the uh, cause of death. Uh, one thing I read is that they, they don't know if, in all the history of use of marijuana, is it has it ever really caused anyone to die? They can't pinpoint it. What I right. saw couldn't pinpoint well, I don't think you have that problem with alcohol. No, I think about a quarter million people <laughs> die a year with alcohol. 480,000 die from tobacco. Yeah. So, you know, I, but the idea is that you don't get rid of it. It's not like you introduce marijuana and get rid of alcohol or get rid of cigarettes. To me, it's just an add-on. And when you have an industry pushing it, as you will if it's legalized, uh, sometimes I, you know, I don't think we need a, another drug uh, to be pushed by anybody. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I was always in favor of decriminalization. Do it yourself. If you want to go grow a couple pot plants in, in your closet like we did in the 70s mm-hmm. a lot, or you want to uh, grow them out back, uh, you know, in your garden, I don't think that's anybody's business. It's not enough a threat to public safety right. to I, criminalize it. But I don't know about full-fledged legalization. What do you think? Well, I think full-fledged legalization, you put it in the hands of capitalists, and capitalists have a way of squeezing every penny out of something. And then I start worrying about the marketing of it to children, um, sort of like uh, Joe the Camel cigarettes right. aiming, aiming at children. I come down with the idea that we live in a free country, and in a free country – this is the type of thing that needs to be free. Um, you know, there's prices to pay to live in a free country. And yeah, w- would the world be better off without alcohol and tobacco and with any drugs? Maybe, probably, but that's not how the world is. Right. And in a free society, I think you have to err most times on the side of freedom and allow the people to make their own choices in life. And I think for me, marijuana falls into that category of being in a free society. Okay. All right. So there we go. That's where we are. Um, so let's start from the very beginning, if we can, and the earliest history of marijuana. Um, I have a few things I'll throw out there, Jeff, and you might want to, if you have something else to add in. I have marijuana really going the whole way back to 500 BC to China. Um, herbal medicine uh, starting in Asia around 500 BC. Burned cam- cannabis seeds have been found in the graves of shamans in China and Siberia. Uh, ancient Greeks, um, large number of Iranian nomads came through Central Asia inhaling the smoke from smoldering cannabis seeds and flowers to get high. Uh, we can go back to 800 AD um, with throughout the Middle East and parts of Af- uh, Asia. The rise of popularity corresponded with the spread of Islam. The Quran forbid the use of alcohol and some other intoxicating substances, but did not specifically prohibit cannabis. So we see it coming from Asia uh, the whole way back before Christ. So this is not something new that we just discovered, maybe like LSD from the 1960s, which is a synthetic drug. Uh, this has been grown for millennia right. for lots of different reasons. I had 5,000 years now. I don't know if there's evidence uh, f- from 5,000 years ago that they used it as an intoxicant because it was very useful um, 
they, it contains fibers and they've used it to make rope and canvas and paper for, like you said, thousands of years. Uh, it's one of the oldest agricultural commodities, not growing for food. So, so right. you, know, you, you don't eat it. And, you know, uh, the mother tongue of the Indo-European languages um, is Sanskrit. And there's actually a word in Sanskrit that means hemp. So just by the fact that there's that word in Sanskrit, we know it's old. And that word is ganja. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. And, come up, that's uh, real interesting. There's, there's some speculation it was used... Uh, in what the Vedas described as soma, which was a sacred drug uh, that that people would take uh, to have uh, spiritual insight, uh, right? Soma, and uh, that's not been proven, but that's a possibility. And of course, hemp contains a lot of things, but uh, what people are uh, the the intoxicant is tetrahydrocannabinol. THC. THC. And so, uh, obviously, at this time, the THC content would have varied, but that's uh, people did start to use it uh, as an intoxicant, and, um, and it's been around a long time. Matter of fact, even in America, now, there's a big difference between hemp that's being grown for a commodity to use as rope. Um, they use make paper out of it and other things. Uh, it grew really fast. And what people are going to be smoking, the THC level in hemp is actually really, really low. Right. You'd have to smoke a lot of <laughs> rope hemp to get any sort of high. But they are familiar with the plant. So, And the intoxicating part of it goes back, like I said, I can trace it back, at least in my research, to well before the time of Christ. But even in America... Um, in Virginia, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, uh, colonies were required to grow hemp. Um, it grew very fast, could be replaced very quickly. Um, and as you, it was used as textile, it was used as rope, it was used to make paper. Matter of fact, you, before we started here, you said even in Pennsylvania, it was being used as a form of currency. Yeah, they, uh, they, they wanted to make it valuable so people would grow it because it was valuable in and of itself for the reasons you said. And there was a, a, a money shortage there was, uh, in the colonies in various places, one of those being Pennsylvania. So it helped to have a uniform barter product. Right. And, and hemp was one of those. Now, as far as your observation that uh, hemp growing for, the, for its fiber content, basically, is not really high in THC. I do have some personal experience with that because uh, I, I came of age in the late 60s. Did you smoke rope? 70s. I, I Here's what happened. <laughs> in, in around my uh, area I grew up in, which is Kosciuszko County in Indiana, the it had been um, uh, a part of the uh, government launched a program during World War II because our hemp supplies were cut off, and we needed right, those. Okay, for, yeah, we needed those for rope and cargo nets and so forth. So they distributed. Uh, well, there was this film called Hemp for Victory. Is it really? Yeah, and okay. they distributed about four hundred thousand pounds of seeds to farmers to grow hemp, and they did that in the county uh, I was from. So in the late sixties, early seventies, when I was in high school, I had a friend. 
that would sell maps to where the hemp was to people coming from out of state. Because <laughs> they knew that, you know, we were a place where hemp for victory had been big. And it's a weed. It'll just grow. Right. And grow taller than you are. Seen, when I was young, I saw marijuana plants seven feet, eight feet high, you know. And uh, and so, I, you know, we, we figured out we could smoke this. And to tell you the truth... Uh, you know, I, I think I've gotten more high off cigars sometimes <laughs> than I have because it wasn't growing for THC content. It right. was growing for its fibers. <laughs> That's a great story. I love the fact that he was selling maps to it to outsiders. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was. It was a funny guy. He also had a motorcycle. And at night, he would wear a blue jeans and a black turtleneck. And <laughs> this is true. And take a bag. Uh, a garbage bag and drive to those areas and stuff a full of pot and then come back through town with a bag. Uh, and and nobody, because people weren't smoking a lot of marijuana at that yeah. time, nobody suspected him of anything. So uh, that was my first introduction to uh, marijuana. And capitalism. And capitalism as well. The free market. All right. So – we have it being grown for uh, a commodity. We have it being grown for its properties as textile and rope. Um, my research tells me like being used as to get quote unquote high, it was brought to America by the Portuguese. I don't know if you found this, okay. um, who took it to Brazil and again by the British who took it to Jamaica. In both cases, it was to pacify slaves. Uh, was given to slaves to pacify them in almost, I think, in a way where alcohol was used with slaves to pacify, where opium was used in China to pacify the masses. Um, cannabis was being grown by the British East India Company. Uh, they grew it in Bengal and India and exported it to Guyana, South America, and Jamaica. Uh, they taxed it heavily and encouraged its plantation people to use it even well after slavery ended. Uh, it was sold in company stores in Jamaica well into the 20th century. Uh, slave-like conditions persisted in the sugarcane fields well into the 20th century, uh, where there was a widespread me- when, when widespread mechanization of sugarcane production. Um, it just became part of Jamaican's culture brought there by the British and the Portuguese to placate slaves. And um, that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, it's cheap. It's easy. Um, it's a weed. It, it's a weed. Anywhere. And if it is going to make life on these plantations, and if you do any study on the on the plant on the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, they, they were they were the worst. They were hell's on earth. Yeah. Um, and if there was just something there for them to remove themselves mentally from what was going on, uh, that would do, that would work. Uh, that would placate people. And so it was being used that way. Uh, and then from there, it's going to make its way into Mexico. But we're already starting to see that we're, we're seeing marijuana use being associated with people with brown skin because um, right. it's being introduced that way into their culture from the very beginning uh, in the slave culture. And then as slavery removes, life is still hell on these islands in the, in the sugar plantations, and they're still using it that way. And, and uh, uh, there was an uh, impetus for Mexican immigration during their civil war in the early 1900s, 1910. And the, the, what, and my research said it, the, the Mexicans, uh, people coming across are going to bring marijuana with them. That's what they use to relax after hard labor and so forth. 
And again, you'll have the idea of this foreign drug is being introduced and you'll have people here going, even though some people were starting to use it and enjoying it, they, they will look at, you know, the Mexicans bring it over and associate the drug with those people. So it'll be seen as foreign. And uh, there's a, a, a famous song. I'm going to play a little bit of it for you. Okay, and the that's a song. Some of you might be familiar with that. Actually, I think I used to sing that song in, when I was in grade school. But you know not, what that reminds me of? That, not that verse. That song takes me back to a 1970s show, uh, The Love Boat. Oh, yeah. I like the La Cucaracha, yeah. La Cucaracha. Well, there's, there's a lot of verses to that. Yeah. And, and this verse, the literal, the literal translation is, The cockroach, the cockroach cannot walk anymore because it, hasn't, because it lacks marijuana to smoke. And it's funny, they associated this song actually with Pancho Villa, who was okay. a Mexican revolutionary and also bandit. And he would come, he came across into the United States and would retreat. And he was kind of a Mexican folk hero for a while. And But that just shows you that they, that, uh, they were using marijuana to relax and they were singing about it, right. uh, and more Mexican people. And more brown-skinned people using marijuana. So we see it moving from the islands in the Caribbean into Latin America, into Mexico. And as you pointed out with the Mexican Revolution and the exodus of people coming from Mexico into the United States, which, by the way, used to be Mexican territory uh, that we took from them in the Mexican War with Andrew Polk. Not Andrew Polk. Um, Andrew Polk? James. James Polk. Thank you. And – we see our first actually backlash against marijuana in El Paso. They became the first city to pass an ordinance against uh, marijuana in 1914. Sale or possession. Right. So uh, on the border. So these Mexicans is well known as, quote unquote, the colored people's drug. And this is going to go well into the 1960s, the 50s and 60s. And as we point out, as the story continues, um, this connection to people with brown skin is going to be used for malicious purposes. Yeah, 20, by 31, 1931, 29 states had outlawed marijuana. And a lot of them were in the Southwest and West. Right. They were outlawing this. Uh, now, you, you mentioned that the uh, West, you know, people from the West Indies uh, were, were smoking pot. And they brought the practice of smoking marijuana to port cities along the Gulf of Mexico. And, of course, one of those is New Orleans. And that's another way that pot... Uh, marijuana gets some bad associations because now it's seen as the the drug of uh, you know as it's being smoked in New Orleans of uh, African Americans and jazz musicians and right. jazz of course was seen sometimes called the music of the devil people danced and it was a very vibrant form of music that was uh, unfamiliar to a, a lot of Americans and um, the America's greatest jazz musician probably greatest Louis Armstrong. Uh, was an ardent user. He called it the gauge. And uh, when he was interviewed, he goes, that was our cute little nickname for marijuana. We always looked at it, pot, as a sort of medicine, a cheap drunk with, and with much better thoughts than one that's full of liquor. Right. And so, you know, that's just, again, it's jazz musicians. 
And there are people from outside of the mainstream. A lot, a lot of them are African-American and people are going to go, wow, well, that's those people that do that. And it seems that that quote, they seem to have a better grasp on this, the use of this um, than even maybe we even do today. That it, that there is a fun quality to it. There's a medicinal quality to it. And him making the comparison to probably being better for you than alcohol and what alcohol is going to do. And and, he, and Louis Armstrong played in a lot of bars. Right. He'd probably uh, and w- see that. And what when I did this research, Jeff, when think, one thing that kept going through my head is the the frustration of how many lives were ruined because of the demonization of this drug in that they went to the zero tolerance. Uh, they go, and I'm skipping a little bit ahead here. I'm, I'm going to back it up. I'm just ta- discussing my frustration of that. We didn't do the research on it because everyone demonized it. We lock people up. We take people's lives away from them. We destroy families. We just, dis- we, we, inst- we create criminals out of whole groups of people that there was no need for them to be criminals. Well, you know, it reminds me, of course, a little bit about prohibition. Yeah. Because prohibition, as you well know, and as, as we've talked about before on the pod, some of that was based on anti-immigrant feeling. Mm. The, uh, you know, the Italians, the, the new people in the early 1900s, a new group of immigrants, they bought their wine. Wine. And Italians drink wine at the Irish and the Germans drinking. Uh, I, well, the Germans had their beer, and actually, uh, was it August Bush organized a group and 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 uh, you know and against prohibition and said it was an attack on German culture. So you can see uh, you can see that uh, Jewish people uh, from Russia came over. They t- Jewish people drink wine, you know, and that so the attack on what they used as an intoxicant uh, was there too. It wasn't just against these particular people. It might have been worse against these, uh, against the uh, the African American jazz musicians and the Mexican immigrants and so forth, because there wasn't something similar. Oh, except unless you call tobacco similar, because right. tobacco certainly has addictive, more addictive than uh, smoking tobacco is more addictive than marijuana. But it was seen as not of our culture, not of American culture. And that made it a lot easier to demonize. And I guess we need to talk about Harry J. Anslinger, who became the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Do you want to say anything about Harry? Well, I, I do want to say some things about Harry, but I want to back up a second and uh, just talk about some – I don't know if you have anything written down on some of the early drug laws the United States put into place. Okay. Um, just to go through some of them, in 1875, San Francisco passed the, the nation's first piece of prohibition legislation. It outlawed Chinese opium dens, um, though not the private sale of opium. And actually what I learned here is that there was actually post-Civil War in the United States um, – there was actually a lot of compassion for drug addicts, uh, especially opium addicts, because how many U.S. soldiers were been, using opium? They've been terribly injured in the right. war. And- so it was not seen as something that was to be punished. Um, and then when the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 passed, things start to change. Um, the act was passed as a result of rising abuse of patent drugs, things like Mr. Winslow's soothing syrup and things like that. And, and, and it should be mentioned marijuana was an ingredient sometimes in these patent medicines. Right. And the act said that patent medicines could be sold, but they had to say exactly what was 
in them. Uh, then the smoking, o- the smoking opium exclusion act of 1909 banned the possession, importation of opium, uh, 1914, the Harrison narcotics act, um, that act started the modern day system of prescriptions and scheduling of chemical substances that still exist today. Um, in 1915, we have the first drug law enforcement agency called the miscellaneous division bureau of, Int- uh, Bureau of Internal Revenue, right? So listen to this. So it, we have these early drug laws being passed. Right. And if you have drug laws, you need some enforcement, right? right. So in 1915, uh, we get the miscellaneous division of the Bureau of Internal Revenue. Now, their job, uh, they were within the Department of the Treasury, to regulate and control oleomargarine, alt- alterated butter, filled cheese, mixed flour, cotton futures, playing cards, and narcotics. Wow. <laughs> exactly. That's a big list. That's a big list. And which is then going to bring us to where we are, where you took us, uh, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, which is eventually going to turn into the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, and that is in, what year did the the, Nar- the Federal Bureau? 1930, I think that's going to be formed, right? Yeah. yeah. So in 1930, we get the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, where now moder- the drug laws are being passed, um, and it, anyone who has done any research on marijuana, you're you're going to run into the name Harry J. Anslinger. Um, he is the villain of this story of how marijuana is going to go from really an unreally known intoxicant for most of Americans, unless you lived in the, in the South to being the demon weed, uh, that needs to be stamped out or, uh, bad things are going to happen to all of us. Now, Henry, things, a couple things you need to know about Henry Anslinger. Uh, the man was a rabid racist. Uh, he was so racist that other racists told him he needed to calm down. Um, (laughs) when he filled out Police reports, official police reports. He routinely used the N-word in police reports. This is a man of his time. And as we already said earlier, that you see that marijuana is being used by Mexicans and blacks in uh, New Orleans through jazz music coming in through Jamaica. Uh, You can imagine the connection he's going to make. So he's in charge of this agency. He's going to be in charge of this agency into the 1960s. And uh, prohibition is running out. Uh, It's kind of clear at this point that prohibition is going to be over. And he sort of has to legitimize his job. He is running literally sort of the the cow that is going to provide funds for him. Alcohol is going to be legalized. And he is looking for the next alcohol. And it is going to be, spoiler alert, marijuana. Right. And he's going to pursue uh, federal laws against marijuana. He calls it evil weed. He says it leads to killings, sex crimes and insanity. And he writes sensational magazine articles. One of them is, I think, marijuana assassin of youth. Now, uh, again, in in the late 60s and 70s, uh, they would show sometimes in art theaters uh, this movie which we'll listen to a little part of it, which was one of the propaganda tools that enabled guys like Anslinger to uh, demonize marijuana. (laughs) 
These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Okay. <laughs> in this film, you will see the ease with which this vicious plan can be grown in your now, that was made in the 1930s. 1936. Right. And in 1937, you have the Marijuana Tax Act, which is going to, in essence, outlaw marijuana. Um, and in the congressional hearings, uh, this is what Angelina is going to say on the record. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanic, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana usage. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Well, we can't have that. Can't have that. Can't have mis- misinitiation, which was uh, ter- th- terrible. This is almost like a playbook right out of the Klan. Because there's two things here, you know, we create, we 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 have the, something that's evil, right? We have marijuana that's evil, and we have to protect white women because white women are going to be sexually attracted to black guys that are high playing jazz music, right? And you can't have that. No, no, can't, that's, can't, can't so, have the the potential for an uh, uh, an adulteration of the races there. That's, right. That's so, the way they look. So Anslinger. Um, goes after marijuana. And this is against the American Medical Association. Um, matter of fact, Anslinger attempts to get doctors to sort of sign on to this. Uh, famously, he calls 30 physicians and 29 of them say, you're full of it. This is, you're, you're completely wrong on marijuana. There's no evidence to suggest what you're saying. But of course, you know, there's four out of five dentists. Uh, also say to chew this kind of gum, you can find always one dentist to tell you not to chew that gum. And that's true of anything, right? So you're going to find this one doctor who's willing to say marijuana is horrible. And that's what Anslinger goes with. And there he is just, it is almost to the point, if it wasn't true, it would be laughable. He goes on even to uh, a story of Victor Licata. I don't know if you came across Victor Licata. I didn't see him. All right. Well, a young Victor Licata hacked his family to death with an axe. Okay. We all can say that's bad. Uh, supposedly, he was high on marijuana. marijuana. And it was discovered many years later, however, that he had history of mental illness. His whole family had history of mental illness. Didn't make any difference. Uh, Anslinger grabbed a hold of this and popularized this story that you could be a murderer if you are smoking marijuana. And that is that clip you played from Reefer Madness. That's basically what it is. It, 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 marijuana is being portrayed like Russian roulette, that you could smoke it and get high and play great jazz music. Or you could smoke it and kill your whole family. Yeah. You just don't know what's going to happen. You're right. Russian roulette is a good way to describe it. And of course, um, uh, at the height of the McCarthy era, Congress passed the Boggs Act. And that specified. I, I, I didn't get this one. Yeah, it specified the same penalties for marijuana and heroin offenses. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Uh, what year was that? Uh, I don't have a year. Okay. It says uh, in the McCarthy era, okay. so the 50s, uh, late 40s, 50s. Uh, and that, that. So, what did you get for first time possession of marijuana? Two to five years in prison. 
for possession, not for selling it, just possessing marijuana. Two to five years. And uh, so, uh, you know, they were the, the federal government started to crack down and they were followed by states which passed what they called mini bogs acts, which uh, is one reason even today the penalties for marijuana possession and sale and the amounts that will get you certain sentences is extremely varied. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. It's extremely varied from state to state. But that's due to sort of the mini-Boggs Act that used the Boggs Act as their template and which made possession and sale uh, and use of marijuana illegal. But two to five years. That's incredible. In prison for first-time possession. So you could have a joint. In that and this is being aimed, again, mostly at African-Americans and mostly at uh, Mexicans. Um Another story here with Anslinger and his associate, his racism and association with jazz music. A very famous jazz musician named Billie Holiday. Um, there we go. That's all right. Uh, uh, Billie Holiday sang a very controversial song called Strange Fruit, and it was about lynchings in the South. Uh, if you ever listen to Strange Fruit and Billie Holiday's voice, she has an amazing voice. Uh, Anslinger did not like this, did not like this song, uh, told – um, it was known to Billie Holiday that Anslinger wanted this song to be stopped. She refused to do it. So what did Anslinger do with Billie Holiday? Well, he had, he had her followed for two years, uh, eventually had her arrested and put in prison for um, drug use. She was an addict. She was using opioids. When she got out of prison, they took her license away to perform. So now she has no way of supporting herself. In essence, they took her livelihood away from her. Surprise, surprise, she slips back into addiction. When she slips back into addiction, Anslinger actually has her handcuffed to the gurney in the hospital bed where she's going to end up dying uh, after her visits are restricted. Her possessions are taken away from her. Even her record player is taken away from the hospital room. But at the same time, Judy Garland is also using opioids. And Anslinger is involved in the Judy Garland case as well. But instead of handcuffing Judy Garland to a gurney where she dies, he was giving her advice that she needed to take longer vacations to alleviate the stress and to get herself recovered. Um, Clearly, there is a bias here. Clearly, there's a huge racism. Yeah, that's yeah that that that's white privilege at its best, right there. And um, and and that remains, and we're going to talk about that. That remains in in the law in various ways. Now, of course, during the late '60s and '70s, a lot of white middle class college students are going to right. smoke pot. Uh, most of the concerts you would attend at the time, people used to tell me who attended those <laughs> concerts, there would just be a cloud of marijuana smoke in the amphitheater or whatever, because that's uh, what the band and the audience was doing. Uh, I remember my introduction to uh, someone I knew who had gotten caught uh, uh, with a simple possession of marijuana. He came, he was a, a graduate of the high school I was from, and he came to talk. And he, he had gotten a year in prison. Got, a year? He had, even in the, this would have been like 69, he he gotten a year in prison for simple possession, first time possession. Uh, this young, now this was a, a white guy. Maybe if he was black or Hispanic, it would have been more. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. But that was a lot anyhow. But as more and more uh, white kids got arrested for this at places like Woodstock and marijuana became popular, Sing along with us. Rock out. Beautiful. 
do so. Hello. Very simple Hello. song. You'll catch on to it as we go along. And now they, they 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 made the lyrics very easy. So if you were smoking a lot of marijuana, you could still sing that song. And uh, that, that's Country Joe and the Fish. But that just showed you it was terribly widespread. A lot of white kids going off, you know, crowding the jails. Yeah. And they decided that maybe we should liberalize these laws a little bit. And uh, eleven states. Um, including uh, about a third of the country's population, they decriminalized marijuana. Mm. And even Jimmy Carter said, well, maybe nationally it needs to be decriminalized. And that's where we're going to end this week's podcast. Uh, as we move into the 60s and 70s and we get into uh, the the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, Nixon, uh, Carter, and we get into Ronald Reagan and Just Say No to Drugs, uh, and also get into the age of legalization. We're going to deal all of that stuff next week in part two of the history of marijuana. Thanks again. If you have any suggestions for shows, let us know. History, politics, and beer at Gmail. Until next week, see ya. See ya.